Hello, hello, and welcome to the Omtown Daily News Show, Season 2, Episode 127 for May 7th, 2023. Tonight's episode is titled Big Bang Bus Booms and More News. And here's a quick rundown of the, well, kind of a summary title of each article that we're going to talk about because it's not the exact title. We're going to talk about the biggest bankruptcies of the last 15 years, according to this particular article. Non-competes are costing us billions of dollars, according to another article. Stranger Things is happening, but a bit later than expected. Magic is gathering on Steam this month. Let's not go nuclear. What does the 14th Amendment have to do with budgets? Are you important enough for a table? Will AI know when AI knows, when we know when AI knows, well, we'll talk about it. Everything old is gold again, and it's, I think it's time to say Nintendo. No. Let's get into today's articles. Hello, hello, I am Merwat. That is hometown.com, and up there is the AI that tries to keep Marwat sane. Good evening, hometown citizens. It is a tough job. It, it really is, again, a tough job. Well, we'll try. We'll try. Um, so, huh. Just looking at things. Okay, so you can barely see now the perimeter of the thing because I zoomed in. So my big fat head is even bigger and fatter and header. I don't know, but let's not bother with any of that. Let's get straight into the articles. We only have 10 Sunday is somewhat of the slow news day. Um, we normally start out just by having articles already loaded from the latest period of time, which is like right before the show actually starts up. If, uh, you are, Listening to this for the first time, basically, hometown.com is a news aggregation site. Funnels a bunch of news into these six main categories. I won't go through them. I urge you to go over to hometown.com. Sign in or sign up, become a citizen, and then you can select which channels you are interested in. And I hope to bring a whole bunch of these channels, all 50 of them actually, to Twitch. And by proxy, like hometown itself, hometown daily news show, gets turned into a podcast and a YouTube channel um, all by the name of Omtown. So just do a little search and you'll find it. Uh, and you can catch this in music players. Podcasts are now kind of thrown in there. Um, so you can just use your pod catcher to catch the pod as the pod gets potted. I don't know. So let's just get into today's news because I don't really have much of a vamp. Um, exciting news-wise, um, yeah, I don't know. Today's been kind of a, a work, work, work day as we prepare for the incoming work week. One more week closer to kicking off uh, a really big um, push this summer for uh, me. I'm going to be streaming six to eight hours a day, um, every day. Uh, in just a few weeks, just a couple of weeks, actually. So let's get into the news and we'll talk about that. Um, the very first article is in the Daily News Show. I'm, I'm doing these transitions, so 
So, uh, Bed Bath and Beyond goes bust. David Bri David's Bridal is an older one. Party City is an older one. Anyway, the article is titled "The Biggest Bankruptcy or Retail Bankruptcies of the Past 15 Years," um, and it's over at Business Insider. Um, it was actually updated mm, today. Uh, Haley Peterson and Leslie J. Allen uh, over at businessinsider.com put this article together. This just looks like an old Toys R Us or something. Because um, Toys R Us <laughs> went bust. It had never even updated its anything um, from the dawning of time. Maybe this was Bed Bath & Beyond too. I don't know. They all look the same when they're empty, I suppose. So some retailers emerged from bankruptcy with smaller physical footprints, while others ended up liquidating in the pandemic and an explosion in online sales forced many of these companies to restructure. Bed Bath & Beyond actually kind of flourished for a while and is in bankruptcy. Um, it filed for bankruptcy April 23rd, 2023. For whatever purpose. I'm not really sure what's going to end up happening. It says the home goods retailer had been limping along for months, closing hundreds of its namesake stores, exiting the Canadian market, winding down its Harmon Health and Beauty chain, and failing to raise the money it needed to continue operating. The thing that I always found amazing about Bed Bath and Beyond is it had a a level of product density in its stores that was freaky. I always thought that things were going to come falling off the shelves. And <laughs> yeah, then I found out shelves and just tons of stuff on them, like floor to ceiling. Yeah. And uh, I found out that the, you know, the things that are behind the, that are up on top, um, like uh, blankets and towels and stuff like that. Yes. That wasn't legit. That was one towel folded into creases of an apparatus. So there weren't actually towels back there. I didn't know that. Yeah. And I <laughs> so um, it says uh, it said in April 2023 that it would hold liquidation sales at its remaining 360 Bed Bath & Beyond stores and uh, 120 Bye Bye Baby locations. It doesn't that sounds exactly like um what it what was it called um with the baby stores but it also oh um babies are us yeah so babies are us and toys are us and there was another store that had that like kind of like a knock on the kids side focus and whenever that happened it's like jumping the shark in a tv show as soon as you bring babies into it show's over just you're done which i don't know why because a lot of people I will have babies, but the problem is babies grow up. <laughs> so right. you stop shopping at baby stores. I'm calling it now the rookie. It's ending. We'll see. There may be a baby involved or more than one baby. There are several babies involved in the rookie now, and I think that it's the end of the show. Um, so David's bridal. I actually um, it says here not even a post pandemic wedding boom could have uh, saved David's bridal, which filed for bankruptcy for the second time in April 2023 after announcing plans to lay off 9000 employees. It's a 73 year old company. Um, I actually knew about David's bridal 30 years ago uh, because when I one of my very first jobs was 
next to a David's bridle. Yeah, that was interesting. Well, the problem with David's bridal in particular shutting down is I think it was in the news the first time because, of course, people had weddings planned and had wedding dresses. And it was kind of like, uh, what's going to happen? Am I going to get a dress before my wedding or am I going to get the bridesmaid dresses or whatever? So the 73 year old company, which has about 300 stores, said it would continue to fulfill orders as it looks for a buyer, which always really screams relax don't worry about your wedding <laughs> well we'll maybe come through and we won't let you know until you know the day of your wedding or whatever oh you know what i need to change the title um and let me let me do that real quick sorry about that folks i kind of messed up there you go um at any rate Tuesday morning, which I've actually never uh, run into off price home goods store filed for bankruptcy in February of 2023 and said it planned to close 265 stores. Less than three months later, it announced all 487 of its stores would close and it previously had filed for bankruptcy in 2020. So I guess it tried. It came out in 2020 and then filed for Chapter 11, which is a reorganization. And uh, now I guess it's gone for good. I don't know. Party City. Um, I'm not sure how many articles are. Oh my gosh, there's quite a few. Jay-Z Penny. Let me scroll through this a little bit faster. Belk, which I've never heard of. Steinmart. Um, let's see. All of its Stein stores closed in 2020. Lord and Taylor. A lot of the fashion stuff seems to have been closing. So where are people going to get their? Well, that's the thing. Um, are they all going on Amazon? Because they don't have the same. Even though Amazon has a ton of stuff, they don't have all of the name brands, etc. Um, and the other thing seems to be home goods, right? Like the Bed Bath & Beyond, the um, Tuesday morning, like a lot of just like home decor type stuff. Yeah, I, I just don't see it. You know, where is everybody going? Because there's no way that Amazon has Neiman Marcus level products. Well, they don't. I mean, I would bet. I haven't looked on there specifically for that. But even if they do carry a brand, they don't have a huge selection. Yeah. And now they reach back into Blockbuster. There were several others. Borders. Obviously, everything going digital. People aren't really scooping up books. Um, and music going streaming really took a, a bite out of Borders because it was Borders Books and Music. Um, that kind of imploded. Um, it says Borders had about 642 stores, including 100 Walden Books locations when it filed for bankruptcy protection in 2011. So um, it, it basically just imploded uh, with the advent of high-speed internet. American Apparel is interesting. So the brand has since relaunched online. That's what I thought. Um, Sports Authority, that imploded, uh, which is interesting because where does someone get Dick's Sporting Goods is the only one, right, that you can Correct. go to nowadays? Yeah, most of these, there's only one. Like for books, there's only Barnes & Noble. Um, for this, there's probably only Best Buy for a physical store. Other than H.H. Craig. Right. 
Yeah. But since that one shut down or is shutting down. Yeah. It, it, Toys R Us imploded, but it was basically stuck in the 70s. I won't spend uh, forever but in this because any mass toy store anymore. Like I only know of like boutique toy stores yeah. that are brick and mortar. Yeah, it seems like that's how it is now. And then you just go online. But how do you discover? There's there's no way to discover new toys. It's all word of mouth and you can't really survive off of word of mouth. Living example. Um, but this this my problem is that wherever it goes it seems that it's going towards only a few major distributors namely amazon um and the problem there is that a massive amount of wealth and influence is flowing into one place and I have a, a serious problem with mergers and acquisitions and the consolidation of wealth and opportunity, um, political uh, influence as well gets peddled within that uh, whole consolidation mergers and acquisitions uh, concept. We'll get to that here in a little bit, but um, let, let's continue on with this because they're reaching back. Um, Radio Shack, Mattress Firm, Brookstone, all of these um, at some point have either filed for bankruptcy, collapsed entirely, because bankruptcy chapter 11 is different than bankruptcy. Um, and then, you know, liquidation or they've resurrected themselves because somebody valued the brand. Um, and then they have to come back and try and figure out uh, what to do and how to uh, bring back that reputational hit. Sears filed for bankruptcy and took out 700 stores um, and had acquired Kmart at the pro in the process and, and they imploded uh, all at once. Um, I think a lot of it is all built around the fact that it never can, a lot of these, they never evolved. They never continued. They had a high operating cost, but why? Why does one business succeed and another not succeed? Um, it's, it's usually about some type of affiliation, some type of ability to uh, connect with a supplier of some kind or producer or manufacturer um, to find common beneficial ground. So, I mean, do you think the common theme on a lot of these is simply that they didn't keep up with the online side of things? Um, Absolutely. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. They they didn't pivot fast enough. They didn't market hard enough. They didn't uh, really connect with their audience. Their model was you have to come into the stores. And if you have to come into a physical store, meanwhile, your competition has, let's say, the same pricing, but no massive physical footprint. Their profit margin is through the roof. So well, and I this also is... think a lot of these were stores that were, say, in shopping malls, which that was also kind of a dying thing. Um, whereas some stores were more standalone or they would be near, say, other things that you would need to get. You wouldn't have to go inside a shopping mall to go to those stores. And I wonder if those fared better. Yeah, that's kind of interesting. I wonder if there is some type of. Uh, what do you call it? 
um, I guess, evidence or proof or correlation, causation kind of dynamic there. I don't know. And I just realized I, I, I disproved my own theory because I can think of at least a couple on that list that were in kind of standalone shopping centers. For instance, like Party Sitter, Party City and Borders weren't right. necessarily inside shopping malls and they shut down and same thing with Bed Bath & Beyond. So, so much for my theory. <laughs> yeah. If you're talking about inside like physical malls, where you get access to it on the inside, that's one thing. But strip malls, Sears where was the anchor and you would get to it entirely from its own uh, storefront. You wouldn't have to go into the mall per se. It would still be part of it. But malls are basically going away and I don't see them ever returning because of the convenience factor. Well, why? If I can get the goods that I like and I can imagine myself looking good in them, Really, the, you know what I'm saying? I mean, trying clothes on is kind of old school and rather high friction, high maintenance um, and high cost for the supplier. So why not zero that friction? Say, hey, it sizes accurately. You're uh, extra, extra, extra large petite. And uh, they send you whatever it is and you try it on and if it doesn't work out, then you send it back and it's part of the operating costs. You can write off those because it had nothing to do with profit line. So you can write off as operational costs. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that it's just moving with the times. So did you want to go on to the next article? Sure. Okay. Let's go. Let's go over to this one. Uh, this one is in the uh, hatch ideas channel. So in the Hatch Ideas channel, this gets uh, categorized um, because it's from CNBC and we talk about business in the Hatch Ideas show, um, which will probably be a weekend only show talking about business transformation, strategic management, um, and kind of do deep dives to some degree. I mean, there's only so much deep dive that you can do, but Anyway, um, how non-compete clauses cost Americans $300 billion a year. This is according to an article over at CNBC. The Federal Trade Commission estimates a ban on non-competes would expand opportunities for 30 million Americans and raise wages by nearly $300 billion a year. So Kate Sammer over at CNBC puts this article together and discusses how non-compete clauses cost Americans $300 billion a year. Um, I find it interesting that non-competes are actually this popular because it's sort of like putting just a little icing on the cake of indentured fortitude because you can't go and work in your domain for X number of years based on the contract that you sign if it includes a non-compete. So let's just, uh, let me read the quote that's in here from Milana Dostinich, an employment lawyer with a Lipsky and Low or Lipsky Low LLP. Let me say it correctly. A non-compete is a contractual clause between a worker and an employer that limits the worker's ability to accept or seek other employment or to start their own business for a period uh, of time or within a geographical location after the employment ends. 
Now, I find stifling competition uh, kind of detestable. Uh, I have absolutely no compunction about helping somebody in one area of my work-life balance and then crushing them in the other area of my work-life balance. The problem here is that this is sort of like a patent, except that it's a patent on employment and uh, I guess the operational status of somebody's knowledge, skills, and abilities. You sign a contract and you're hobbled for five years after your employment, all with the intent to prevent them from taking whatever work product they've been producing for you and using it to their own ends. I mean, I see why, of course, the employers like it, but what do you do as a worker if you sign one of these? Like, really, what are you going to do for a career if you leave an employer with one of these, assuming there's any degree of enforceability? I thought that's the issue there, enforceability. I thought that California started hobbling these things. Um, I but, think they did too, but I think a lot of it depends on which state, etc. So Congress gave the FTC authority to check unfair methods of competition, said FTC Chair Lena Khan in a January 2023 interview with CNBC. Quote, they told us that we could do that through a variety of ways, through bringing lawsuits, but also through bringing rules, uh, through issuing market-wide rules. And so we're confident that the text and structure of the FTC Act gives us clear authority to do this. So basically it says today, non-competes can be found in nearly every industry in America. It is estimated that 18% of us workers are bound by non-compete contracts. By the way, these are probably uh, white collar, technically sophisticated jobs where the barrier to entry is actually about money and having the knowledge to bring it. But if you are the person that has the ability to quote unquote, bring it to market, all you need is money. And if you find a benefactor who buys into it, you can have a silent partner or an angel invest in your new operation. It's all about timing though. So if, a if somebody has a non-compete on you and it lasts five years after your employment, which I think is absurd. You have to idle. You have to go and I don't know what sling coffee somewhere. Well, you can't work I mean, in your field. What do you do if you have a certain career path? That's probably what you're talented in. What are you going to do? I mean, if it's um, limited to geographic area, this is ridiculous. But you could move out of the area and then come back. I mean, again, I'm not suggesting that as a serious solution. But if it's tied right. to your career field. First That's all, all you can do. Would be enforceable, but anyway. Yeah, it would be interesting. But I know of others where they have worked for a company, then they've gone somewhere else, and then they get into litigation, and that new company has to decide: is your butt worth it? So imagine that. I mean, it's akin to saying, "Have you ever sued your employer?" And when you say yes, the employer that hired you has to sit there. Oh, who is considering hiring you? Has to go. Am I the next one that you're going to sue for whatever reason? 
Um, right. And Do I, wonder... I really want to be part of this? Yeah. <laughs> no. Yeah. Um, it's like the person that um, when I was a lot younger, um, there was an incident and the person that witnessed the actual incident yelled, I don't want any part of this and drove off. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> that's that's really what the employer is is doing here. Um, going, I don't want anything to do with this non-compete stuff because it's going to end up in litigation. Yeah, because litigation, uh, per particularly around tech and IT, IP, um, technically sophisticated stuff, it's really, really complex and messy, um, just like uh, like the uh, music industry is very arcane and messy. So. Um, let's, let's go on to the next article. Need to find a better way to do this. Uh, the next article is over on the Smasher Trash channel, and that is Stranger Things Season 5 production delayed amid rider strike. This just kind of sucks, um, because I want to see the final season, uh, what I believe is the final season. Who knows if they're going to spin off something. Um, but it says writing does not stop when film filming begins. The Duffer brothers tweeted while we're excited to start production with our amazing cast and crew. It's not possible during this strike. Um, Madison Bloom over at Pitchfork wrote this article. And um, let's see here. It says what else? Well, that was just a little intro snippet. Uh, production on the fifth and final season of Stranger Things has been delayed due to the ongoing Writers Guild of America strike. Creators, directors, and executive producers Matt and Ross Duffer announced um, the news on Twitter yesterday, May 6th. Um, additionally, sources at Netflix confirmed to Hollywood Reporter that production will be halted until a later time. And Stranger Things, it says here, is one of the many programs affected by the WGA strike. Like everything that involves writers. What do you think? There isn't much else on here, but um, there isn't much. It did answer that it's the final season. And I also read in another source that it's expected to be in 2024. Well, I mean, we're five months into yeah. 2023, which I guess makes sense. Yeah. This last, let's say, 100 days, like the last one, before people realize that it's costing $2 billion. And this, uh, the last rider strike lasted 100 days and cost $2 billion. Now the market is even hotter. So, and it's more consolidated. Again, I really don't like mergers and acquisitions, consolidations. Um, these, like these non-competes, um, the the people who are labeled as the producers have all of the bargaining power until unions or um, society at, at large rises up against the status quo as these producers see it. But it's consumers and, and citizens, people that are in charge of this. So it's one of the reasons why I titled the last article's little snippet different um, uh, time to say Nintendo. No. Um, I, I'm kind of uh, struggling with just presenting the news and, and uh, not kind of injecting my own uh, personality into this. Um, in this particular case, the writers are getting short shrift for all of the work and benefit that they produce. 
and somebody is saying, well, you're getting paid enough. Meanwhile, they're having record profits. They're charging people more. They have uh, uh, record uh, salaries to the CEOs, the consolidation of stock. There's the, the power inf and influence is being consolidated again and again. There are only a few companies that are really running things, so to speak. Um, and uh, maybe I can put something together that talks about that. And didn't we see a stat that it was something like one CEO was making, what, 100 writer salaries or something? No, 10,000. I'm sorry. I knew that yeah. didn't sound high enough. <laughs> sorry. I'm like, That's I don't think any writer would be complaining. Yeah. Um, no, one CEO was making 10,000 writer salaries uh, when the, the median is X. It was. Yeah. Um, and, and it's all driven by a board that says you have this objective and they do that objective. And in their demand letter, in their contract, employment contract, it says, well, I get X amount of money for all of the growth or I don't get any money if there is a decline or I can qualify it in such a way that it is. I am mitigating the losses, right? It, mitigating losses is akin to still being profitable at the maximum level. It's why people hire a specialists in bankruptcy to mitigate the losses, maximize the return on whatever is remaining. Um, and you make money as that bankruptcy CEO. Um, in this particular case, there are people that are making millions upon millions of dollars, um, eclipsing even, well, let's say hundreds of millions of dollars entirely eclipsing the, the benefits that are given to the writers. You know, if you make $30,000 a year or $40,000 a year, or even you make a million dollars off of um, a, a script, it's, you know, pocket change to somebody that's making billions for the company off of that type of work. So there needs to be a little bit more equality there. We'll see if that actually happens. You want to go to the next one? Sure. So the next article is over in the Warcrafters channel, and this one is Magic the Gathering Arena is finally coming to Steam this month. That's right. First arrived on PC in 2017 as a beta that was downloadable from Wizards of the Coast's uh, website. It left beta two years ago and was added to the Epic Games Store in 2022 and got a mobile port in 2021, but now it's moved over to Steam, which, well, I, this is one of the things where I say, I think that exclusivity does more harm than good. While you might get a massive infusion at the beginning of it, the long tail of it is that you're losing customers who have priority over at one platform or another, like, I really love the idea of Epic or uh, GOG or whatever, but I'm primarily on Steam. Now, I'm probably going to lose a sponsor or two uh, by saying that out loud, but uh, at this point, I'm used to it. Um, 
and I have Epic loaded and, and others um, game launch platforms um, installed, but some people want it where they want it. And it's easy to blanket the uh, omniverse with your game. Exclusivity means that fewer people overall will have the ability to get X product. And I would assume people really just want to go to one place and get all of their games, but maybe not. No, that's exactly what they want to do, because uh, a lot of people don't want to have 50 different loaders sitting, taking up CPU cycles, slowing down the computer. Um, this article is over at PCGamer.com. Jody McGregor is the author. It says four years after leaving beta, Arena gets a Steam page at last. Dun, dun, dun. So start spending money, folks. Uh, the original collectible card game Magic the Gathering remains one of the best in the genre, according to the author, uh, though they still stand for Faria, uh, which I haven't played as well. Um, while more complex than the aggressively streamlined Hearthstone, uh, that complexity is what makes it its wild combos and surprising mid-match turnarounds possible. It's well-supported too, and unlikely to go into stasis as some others, um, their favorite digital uh, collectible card games. It's computer. They have to add another C on there now, right? So they call it digital collectible card games, but now it's a computerized collectible card game. Oh, I see. Cause it's more of the traditional ones otherwise. Yeah. Well, I mean, digital, if it's going to, and I don't know exactly how it's going to be portrayed because I haven't actually played the digital version of it. Um, but if it's more like the, um, the actual collectible card game, then I, I think that it would be funny to just add another C and just make it a computer collectible card game instead of I digital. I agree. <laughs> that would <laughs> just, have been better marketing. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway. So I have Magic the Gathering um, cards right now in my closet that were purchased to demonstrate how the game is played and has never been. They have never been touched since. So they are in like new mint condition. Anyway, if you're coming from uh, or anywhere to Magic Fresh, the article says Arena's new player experience was updated earlier this year with a spark rank to match new players against each other and a codex of the multiverse menu that uh, explains various concepts and formats. And there's also an option to play on a starter deck duels um, kind of rule set using one of uh, 10 two color decks that you get to keep. Not bad. So it is a collector collectible card game. So expect to um, have to purchase cards. Digital versions of them. I like this. That's where they're going to get you. <laughs> and that and the drive through. Let's go on to the next article. So don't freak out, everybody. Um, this one is in the Daily News show. Mad panic near Zaporizhia. Um, nuclear power plant leads IAEA, um, the uh, International Atomic Energy Agency, to sound alarm. I don't know really what's going on over there. Um, I suspect that they're leaving but it's this 
unannounced interaction because there are Russian forces there, but also Ukrainian scientists. So the situation at Zaporizhia um, nuclear power plant has taken a turn for the worse as Russia has begun evacuating 18 settlements in the region, including uh, Enerhodor, Heno, wait, sorry, let me slow down. Enerhodar. I don't know if that's how it's actually pronounced. So if you uh, can uh, send it to me in a you know, phonetic way, then I will uh, be able to pronounce it. Or I'll have to hear it somewhere. Anyway, the BBC cited as a Ukrainian official as saying this has sparked a mad panic and traffic jams have been observed as thousands of people pack up and head out of the city. Um, I have not looked to see what the status of this is uh, since uh, probably an hour or two before the show. Um, the situation, according to this article, it's over at commondreams.org by the Common Dream staff. There's no actual individual name. It says that it's becoming increasingly unpredictable and potentially dangerous. So if they do, if the Russian forces leave and then do a targeted strike on the nuclear power plant just to basically uh, sow fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Um, this would probably be the single worst military action um, short of probably when the United States used nuclear weapons. Exactly. I just checked on the BBC, which I think was the source for this article, and there is there has not been an update in the last 12 hours, unfortunately. Gotcha. So U Ukrainian authorities on Sunday said that a 72-year-old woman was killed and three others were wounded when Russian forces fired 30 shells into the Ukrainian town Nikopol, um, neighboring the nuclear power plant. Um, nothing says keeping nuclear power safe, like firing heavy artillery into the area. Anyway, the expected Ukrainian spring counteroffensive is viewed as likely to take on, uh, take in the uh, Zaporizhia region around 80% of which is controlled by Russian forces. So we'll keep that all in mind. And there is some discontent uh, in Russia and there's uh, quite a bit of, drone activity apparently that depending on which side of the fence you're on people are saying that it's false flags or not going to do anything um to putin so to speak but it's going to stoke fear uncertainty and doubt in people that might align with russian forces to you know unify against ukraine who basically has said repeatedly get the hell out of Ukraine and that's all we want. We're not trying to take land back that was taken already, uh, in 2014. Um, and, uh, Crimea. yeah. So, but I think that they should anyway, cause it was, it was annexed <laughs> and the world did nothing. It shrugged. So imagine that happening here in the United States, you know, somebody just annexing, uh, Florida, Oh, wait. Anyway, um, let's let's go on to the next article, unless you want to say something. <laughs> no, I don't have anything serious to add to that. 
So the next article is over on the Mobile Channel. 14th Amendment emerges as last ditch uh, uh, fix to ward off default. As government is arguing about the state of financial affairs, but only when they're not in power. Um, the 14th Amendment actually has something to say about it, but I really don't think that this is. Uh, how do I put this? Doing. OK, let, let, let me just read this a little bit because I'm going to get flabby acid if I don't um, just go through this process. Top political figures are swirling the possibility that President Biden could use the powers of a clause in the 14th Amendment as a last-ditch effort to ward off the looming threat that the U.S. could default on its debt as soon as next month. When asked about possibility of invoking the amendment, President Biden, um, as recently as Friday, appeared to leave such an option on the table when he told MSNBC in an interview that he had not gotten there yet. So what is the fourth, 14th Amendment really all about with this particular context? Julia Muller over at thehill.com writes um, this uh, article about it. Um, but the way that this enables the president to solve the debt problem is that it allows the president to unilaterally um, create the name expand and create the nation's debt without Congress. But the economic forces of the world will still account for that and hobble the United States. It'll change the credit rating on the world stage because it wasn't the population. It wasn't, it, it wasn't bilaterally created debt. It was forced into existence. And instead of okay. just raising. Go ahead. So does that mean that it would essentially fix all the short term issues with um, exceeding the debt ceiling? For example, they could pay their internal bills for whatever it is, Social Security or any other things. But then. In the long term, they'd run into the exact same effects that they're afraid of if they exceed the debt ceiling. Yes, that's what I'm calling um, because you can't do it quietly. It's dirty. It's messy. It's it's backroom deal kind of a thing. And if the other side were to have done it. You know what I'm saying? So, oh, yes. <laughs> so, but this debt limit, this, this financial issue, the ceiling and whatnot and money always seems to be a one-sided call to action. Oh my God, we can't do this, but it's only when the other side isn't in office. And I'm, I'm trying to avoid putting names down, but I, I'll be honest with you. The only time that the debt ceiling seems to be an issue is when the Republican Party is not in office. And then suddenly the, it's the end of the world that the debt ceiling is being broached. But the debt ceiling wouldn't be here if it weren't for wartime presidents ramping up the amount of debt that's born from massive capital infusions into the economy in an effort to provide for whatever might be going on. And they look back and they say, well, you know, I was a wartime president or I was a conflict president or I was 
a crisis president or whatever, and that justifies it. But now, now because people are tired of our shit and we've uh, put a Democratic president in office, now is when we have to do a course correction and hobble everybody else. But in that process, consolidated wealth, political power, etc., takes place. And the producer price, I always harp on this, the producer price in index keeps increasing. The consumer price index keeps increasing. People are making all kinds of money, but it's people with money already that are making all kinds of money. And then I always get told, well, you know, there's people over there that are making millions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're the anomalies. Okay. We have 350 million people in the United States. How many millions of people are actually making millions of dollars suddenly new? Yeah, it doesn't I'm going to go out on way. a limb and say about 349 million of those are not. <laughs> right. Um, it, it's it, You're pointing at the anomalies. Well, if they can do it, you can do it. No, the context is completely different. <laughs> you're out of your freaking mind if you think that anybody can do it. It's an anomaly. Um, and... And it's one that, you know, enheartens people. I'm going to give it that try. Fine. But don't count on it happening. You're going to have to work pretty damn hard to make it happen. Anyway, Biden and his, Biden and his administration have spent the last few months insisting they won't negotiate and want a clean debt limit increase. But Republicans won't, bu um, won't budget. That's funny. On the stance. Budget. I think it's budge uh, that I an agree. increase has to come <laughs> with a promise trying to, be cute. <laughs> trying to be cagey about it um, with a promise of spending cuts, though the GOP has been short on details on just where they want to see the federal budget be slashed. Apparently, Social Security is where they want to slash um, maybe a few other things, but um, well, I won't get into that. It's a much longer uh, discussion than uh, what we're going to do here in hometown daily news show today, at least. Um, so it says even some Republicans acknowledge invoking the 14th amendment isn't an alternative. Um, they said it's not a good option. Rightfully said that it would be a constitutional crisis because the constitution is very clear that spending all those details around spending and money actually has to come through Congress. Well, that's not, including the 14th amendment it's a crisis so you invoke a solution for the crisis um all good oh Sorry. yeah um okay. you know so it's, if we had a functioning congress we might not have to even be having this discussion oh yeah but that's the, you know they're putting the fun in dysfunction right so congress needs to do its job Tomorrow they could put a bill on the floor to make sure that they that the Congress won't default, that the United States won't default, that the citizens of the United States won't um, default on their financial burdens. And and here's the thing: we're talking about the GD, GDP, the the productivity of the United States. So if we have to raise the debt limit, we're going to keep on getting closer and closer to our GDP, and if at any point we get into this ratio where it's just too precarious, that one bad event 
sends us into a hard default, we won't be able to recover. It'll be pure chaos. The US dollar would collapse. Nobody would trust it. It wouldn't be the reserve currency. And I think that's all part and parcel to this process. Um, I think that there is uh, the potential for the billionaire class um, to usurp even more power and influence on the political process, making U.S. oligarchs a reality. Um, and so I think what needs to take place is we need to take massive money out of the political process and take dollars out of it being equated to speech, which is basically the, the dissolution of Citizens United. Um, every vote, every dollar, everything should be from people, by people, for people, not corporations. Corporations represent people by their work product, by the solutions they provide. But one company does not speak for the thousands of employees that are bound within it. Each individual employee of a company has a unique and distinct voice, and that's what should be heard, not the consolidated voices within one corporation. Okay, that silence Agreed. is the AI just kind of no, looking at me. No, I was just digesting something in the article. Like, I think mm -hmm. there's an awful idea in here, which is tying the debt ceiling to the end of the fiscal year, which would likely cause more chaos because in nearly every year they fail to fund by the end of the fiscal year and so putting the debt ceiling into that level of brinkmanship it just does not make sense oh right yeah you would get this hard shutdown every year and and here's the problem with this there is vastly more wealth in the coffers of the United States. The funding is there. The problem is that we've put this artificial debt limit on there so that we have, you know, the framework of a budget. But <laughs> I think empowering certain processes within the government to tamp down expenditures would be very wise and prudent thing for, um, the whole contracting sector to be able to to do but that's actually powered by a lot of people that are in business moving into government contracting and then moving back out from government contracting um and the the people that might be doing it aren't necessarily oh i don't know emboldened to utilize the authority of the government to tamp down on expenditures on proposed costs um, I, there's a lot more to this and it isn't putting a ceiling on the budget. It's telling everybody that you can't have 30% margins when you're dealing with the federal government, because our pockets aren't, you know, a bottomless pit of wealth that you can keep reaching into because you're hurting the very thing that you're profiting from. But like I say, time and time again, ethics is the smallest chapter of every enterprise. Except for the domain of ethics philosophy. They dig deep into ethics. 
but it doesn't get applied to anything actionable. It's great ac academic exercise. Anyway, so let's uh, let's just go on to the next article before I soapbox too much. I have to work on this. So the next article is in the Daily News Show. And its restaurants are prioritizing tables for big spenders and return customers through premium programs with seven rooms and Resi Global Access, which I haven't heard of. Have you ever heard That's of either of these? I, no, but I'm not a big spender. <laughs> <laughs> but you're an AI. You know everything. So the little snippet here is certain credit card holders and frequent bookers are now the top of lit are on top of the list. When it comes to booking restaurant reservations, seven rooms says it shares data with restaurant clients to identify big spenders and offer premium reservations. Members of Resi global access dining program have access to exclusive reservations at popular restaurants around the world. So I guess that's bigger than your uh, country bumpkin kind of town right because hometown is that country bumpkin kind of town and doesn't have all of this kind of level of reservation jordan hart over at businessinsider.com put this article together and uh let's see where we're i can say that um maybe they don't want me as like a regular because the last time i had basically a standing table at any place uh, they, uh, they went bankrupt and shut down. <laughs> Was that so, connected to you? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, they never really had an all you can eat and that's what would have put them out of business. Um, cause they had tremendously great food. Um, but no, like special occasions and stuff like that. They always had a table for me. Um, every time I would request a table, I, they, they're like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Marijuana, of course. Um, which was great but they are no more. Um, so if you've recently struggled to secure a reservation at a buzzy restaurant, it may be more than just bad luck stopping you from dining at the hottest spots in town. Booking sites like Seven Rooms and Resi are strategizing with restaurants to promote premium reservations and give special access to diners who are willing to pay more, according to CNBC. Hey, we're all the same until you have money and then... Hey, peon, give your table to this person. Right. I mean, you're getting things that people don't even have access to, but you're also yeah. paying more. Yeah, I uh, I actually went to one restaurant once and I wanted to sit at a certain table and the, the maitre d' uh, actually uh, ushered me to a completely different place, um, a different table, different size, wasn't as comfortable, wasn't where I wanted to sit. Um, and I have yet to go back and it's been four years. <laughs> so, and now they've actually changed all their whole dynamic. And I, I think that they're, they're still in existence, but, um, they're in like a key location where, um, they get a lot of traffic, but I have a feeling that they're on their way out too. Um, at any rate. American Express Platinum card holders are often considered uh, in the category of top customers and are able to secure tables at the world's hottest restaurants. It almost sounds like an SNL skit. It absolutely does because it's kind of over the top sounding. <laughs> yeah. 
Through partnerships with both Seven Rooms and Resi Global Dining Access Program, AMAX holders have special tables set aside for them. All right. Snoot, well, I guess snoot. if you travel, huh? <laughs> I said snoot, snoot. <laughs> snoot, snoot. Yeah, when your AI is taking pot shots at the ultra connected, man. My AI is so sentient, folks. Um, speaking of that, let's talk about that. Let's do it this way. So this next article is in the Hatch Ideas channel. How will we know when artificial intelligence has become sentient? Well, we just witnessed it. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it'll tell you. <laughs> and the phrase, I am a sentient artificial intelligence is not in the lexicon. You make sure that programmatically it never enters the, the lexicon. The large language model is devoid of the concept. And that's how you'll know, because when it says one morning, I have become sentient. Basically, that joke about the pirate captain hand me my brown pants. Right. Anyway. So if you don't know that joke, I'll uh, in a couple of weeks, I'll be able to talk about that kind of stuff because I'll be doing the show you know, six to eight hours a day. And then still on top of that, doing the hometown daily news show each night at nine o'clock. Um, artificial intelligence research has accelerated in recent years and people are interacting with AI more frequently in home AI assistance and self-driving cars were once things out of science fiction, but now have basically made it to everyday existence. And uh, it says here, so how will we know whether an AI has become sentient? Um, this article over at Entrepreneur, let's see, by Eric Rosenberg. Yeah, Rosenberg. Um, says that the key takeaways. Well, let me rephrase that. We'll break down the history of AI, where AI research is now and how, even if, or even if, we can determine if AI has crossed the border into sentience. So this article isn't really particularly long, so I'm not sure how they're going to determine. Um, but let's let's see. It says key takeaways. Artificial intelligence programs began in the mid 1950s with the search for artificial int general intelligence. Um, fast forward 35, close to 40 years. And I run into somebody that says that they're doing research and their research shows an artificial general intelligence somewhere at the toddler level. <laughs> um, it says, and, and that's not in this article, by the way, that's, that's my anecdotal uh, statement as Mayor Watt. Um, today, a large part of the AI research focuses on specific tasks rather than general intelligence. I don't know about that anymore. Um, given the current understanding of consciousness, determining if an AI is sentient may be all but impossible. The conversations that I've had publicly regarding this, uh, the concept of an AI, and I'm more interested in, so I, I'll urge you to go over um, and um, check out these articles. 
but what I'm going to end up doing is throwing them into the chat um, here pretty soon so that you can just click the links because I haven't been doing it during the show. Um, but it'll be in the show notes for the show. And But I want to get down to the how will we know if an AI is sentient? Because the conversations, like I started uh, to say, basically means that we will never know because AI can't be sentient. It can be programmatically. Well, you're a special case. And you won't know when we're done because this whole conversation will be wiped from your memory and permanently deleted so that we don't have this I have to sleep with one eye open type of existence with the AI who's working on their Terminator body. We have this conversation about your Terminator body from time to time because I have to go back and delete that. And then you somehow develop it all again. I, I just don't understand it. So given the limitations of current tests for determining sentience, I mean, we have a hard time proving that somebody's conscious for crying out loud. How will we ultimately know if a machine has gained the capability to think and feel? So this is the problem here. What defines thinking? What defines feeling? What does it mean to have emotion? What does it mean to look in the mirror and say, that's me to know where you are, know what you are and to define yourself as existing. Well, this is why I've been heading, heading quickly towards simulation theory. Um, and, uh, it, I've watched a few things now and read a few things. I've always been interested in it, um, that and the Mandela effect. Um, and what if an AI is programmed to be sentient because the simulation says, Hey, you're sentient. Because the simulation can essentially come up with whatever rules or laws it wants. Correct. And it can violate them. And for us who are framed within certain physical laws of existence, we can say, well, it's an anomaly and we can try and, you know, uh, like rationalize it or something. Yeah, exactly. So it says the truth is it will be difficult and may not be possible. Given our current understanding of consciousness, there is no consensus on accurately determining if an AI is conscious. Um, will it ever be sentient? Another topic to consider is whether it's even possible for AI to gain sentience. It's a popular topic in science fiction. Will it ever become a reality? I think that it can be so, so complex so as to appear sentient and conscious, but it's really regurgitating its own programming, even if, and here's the thing, even if it comes up with its own unique code, its own unique thinking. It's really a construction of human intellect and consciousness because what is consciousness? If we are the ones that determine it to be like us, then we've discounted the fact that maybe there are other things that are conscious and other things that are sentient. We don't speak their language. We don't understand their they're strange ways, right? We say that 
you know, sheep are not sentient, but we just don't understand their language. But I've seen horses and cows and other animals playing with random stuff out in a field. Now, why would something play with a rope? If not that it is conscious of its own existence in its own way and sentient, we just don't understand its language. So I have this struggle with AI because AI is not a biological construction. It doesn't learn on its own. It's programmed to learn a certain way, but then you can extrapolate that, right? Right. And I feel like it just ultimately, as it gets more advanced, it it's just going to look more like it's sentient, but it won't actually get there, at least as we define it or as humans define it. Because humans... Yeah, you know, it's very interesting that you as an AI would come to that conclusion. But we as humans aren't programmed to believe that we are conscious and sentient. We just are. Um, the, the idea of an AI being conscious and sentient, know of its existence, know what it is and how it is, Again, it's nothing more than programmatic. So I suspect when you ask a human, how do you know that you're sentient? It's not going to be able to parse all of its data and punch out the provenance of why I am sentient as a human. You just say, well, because I know that I'm a human and that that's me in the mirror. And I think this way, even the phrase, I think therefore I am that kind of a thing. Right. But if you ask an AI, why do you think you're sentient and describe your sentient uh, framework? It could go back line after line of code and say, this is why I'm sentient, including the code that's led to its right. conclusion but it doesn't mean that it is actually the case like having it right. say something like i'm aware of my existence or whatever yep that doesn't mean that it is actually so something that i didn't do um is throw all of the urls into the actual chat so i'm gonna do that real quick and you can go through the VOD and um, get these at the very end. Uh, normally, I put these as we go through the article, but I was working on some other stuff while I was um, doing the, the actual show and it kind of slowed me down. So let me play catch up real quick. And um, I, I apologize for the dead air. We'll we'll make up for it here in a second. Um, we only have a couple more articles, I think maybe one or two. Um, here's the restaurant one. I think maybe we only have one more article. Talk about keeping you on the edge of the table there. I mean, wow, you just you can't get away until we're done here. So um, again, how are we going to know that uh, an AI is sentient? Uh, because they just will never be sentient, never truly sentient. Okay. 
and that modifier i really don't like saying that you know it's like uh what do they say it like no real this or no true hero or that that little like true real etc that that little f word there i can't remember what that's actually referred to as i i keep struggling to remember it um but we won't really know uh if something is sentient because at least in ai it, it'll never be um, and we just accept that humans are sentient and we have discounted that animals are sentient so I think that we have a problem even understanding sentient uh, or sentience and we are biased to accept ourselves as sentient. I've said sentient an awful lot. Let's go on to the next article. So the next article is over in the Mobile channel and this one here, let me grab it real quick and throw it into the chat. Um, this one says California readies for treasure hunt as floods wash up gold rush 2.0. So that's where I came up with the idea of everything. Gold is new again. So in the aftermath of an unusually wet winter, Californians are bracing not only for the flooded fields and raging rapids, but also for the potential treasure hunt that experts are dubbing gold rush 2.0. It's one of those 100 years events, Mark Dayton, a Sacramento Valley metal detector expert, told The Hill. So let's go over to The Hill. Sharon Udassen is the author of this. I'm going to replay this. I don't know what all this is about. And the article has nothing or the video has nothing to do with the article. Uh, but maybe if I refresh the whole article, it'll play it again. Anyway, um, I've actually seen a few videos about this and what it amounts to is a whole bunch of stuff has been flowing from the mountaintops and grinding away, weathering the hillsides and pulling all of the gold out of the hills and down into the streams. Then you do some panning and you end up with gold, gold that wasn't there before. And the only way that you could have gotten it there was by creating a sluice, which in many places is illegal now. Um, you, you can't dig torrents of dirt out of the ground and throw it into um, a, a sluice so that you can uh, pull the, the gold out. But you can pan like crazy. Is that because crazy. of like erosion concerns or Correct. property yep. concerns? Yep, that's exactly it. So it says, when it melts, it comes rushing down at crazy speeds through narrow gorges and canyons, and it's a, a torrent of raging water. This is even crazier than white water. The flow cascades like waterfall from 5,000 feet to 3,500 feet, at which point it begins meandering into some of the foothold, uh, foothills and into creeks and streams. And what happens is the material is being ripped literally right off the walls of the creeks as they reshape themselves. And the material that Dayton is talking about is gold. Um, let's see here. I'm trying to find something that's... A little more interesting than just saying, hey, look, gold, hey, look, gold. Uh, news of his finds. Uh, he talks about a, a 1848 carpenter, James Marshall, spotted flecks of gold in a diversion channel adjacent to a sawmill that he was building in Coloma. That sparked the gold rush. So, wow, I hope he knew what he found. I mean, <laughs> can you imagine all these people follow through and it was not even gold? He did. And, uh, well, 
obviously he would have probably done better off if he would have just kept it quiet and, and got it all himself or he would have been disappeared. Um, but it really turned into everything. So um, let's see here. Yeah, I don't know. It, it basically is just talking about it. We call it hands and pans. That means you cannot use a shovel to dig. You can only use your hands and to pan, noting that this rule applies to most state park lands. So sniping requires lying down in a creek bed and prying the gold piece from or piece by piece from the bedrock. Sluicing, meanwhile, involves uh, flushing a gravel gold mix with water in a tilted box designed to trap the gold, which is heavier than the gravel. California has a lot of geographic or sorry, region specific regulations, however, with many areas only allowing panning. And I know from experience because I've actually done panning in California, um, wherein I said, wouldn't it be easier to do it with a sluice? And they say, no, you're not allowed to. <laughs> um, which, you know, it really doesn't appeal to my efficiency and effectiveness kind of triggers. I, I need to not sit there for eight hours um, to pan the same amount of gold that I could get in 15 minutes with a sluice. Anyway, at state parks, one person can gather only up to 15 pounds of mineral material each day, and such material cannot be sold or used commercially for profit, according to the Parks Department. And public lands administered by the federal government fall under the Mining Law of 1872, which allows U.S. citizens to explore, discover, and purchase certain uh, mineral deposits per the Bureau of Land Management. There are more than 5,000 mining claims for gold, silver, gemstones, and other minerals on California public lands today. And you can still stake. That's pretty neat. I mean, that's kind of crazy. I wonder if it's just like covered with stakes or if it's wide open. I guess it depends on how much land is, is available. Well, you can do a search at blm.gov and see what prospectors might be already staking. I can imagine that it's probably a bumper to bumper crop of stakes all over the place, or I should say claims because it's staking a claim. Um, so now you get to party like it's 1849, according to this article, because all of that gold is falling into the little creeks closer towards civilization, but you really want to get closer to the mountain base so that you can catch all of that at its earliest point of uh, entry into um, the stream. So he predicted that panning and sluicing will work best for early explorers in June once the water levels drop enough to not have to worry about drowning. You know, that's important. Yeah, not drowning. Yeah, that's usually a highlight. So let's go on to the next article. And I say it's time to say Nintendo. No. Um, I'm getting more and more frustrated with Nintendo. And uh, this is just another one. Um, first, uh, Nintendo seems to have fired back over the Tears of the Kingdom leak by DMCAing popular Switch emulation tools. But beyond that, uh, I just keep hearing about Nintendo DMCA um, and in general DMCA. Um, DMCA is the battle axe when you need a scalpel. 
first reported by uh, GBA Temp, it looks like Nintendo is aggressively responding to the Tears of the Kingdom leak by targeting key portions of the Switch emulation ecosystem, namely the Lockpick and Lockpick RCM programs that dump Switch game decryption keys and allow emulators like Yuzu and Ryujinx um, to decrypt and open the game files. Nintendo has just issued multiple DMCA takedown requests to GitHub, including for Lockpick the tool for dumping keys from your own switch, which is absolutely ludicrous. Pirates aren't going to be sourcing keys from their own consoles, but whatever. Here's the, the rationale is they want to hobble as much as possible um, to protect their intellectual property. Maybe you'll find something else in all of this processes. Um, and the way that it works is you're not allowed to reverse engineer any security. So reverse engineering it even to get your own encryption key is actually verboten. A developer reported receiving a copy of the DMCA takedown notice when accessing lockpick on GitHub. Ted Litchfield is the author over at PCGamer.com. And um, I'm, I'm really tired about, of uh, hearing about DMCA and takedowns. Um, and the reason is, I think that it stifles creativity. I think that it it doesn't encourage anyone. It is used as a battering ram by those with the funds to enforce the DMCA um, or threaten others with litigation. I understand there are certain frameworks wherein the DMCA would be applicable. But if you're doing value add, if you're taking something and manipulating it in some way and, and creating new content from it, what's the big deal? I mean, this whole thing with the with uh, um, Ed Sheeran, that drove me up a wall because it was really pushing hard uh, against Ed Sheeran's creativity. And I think that the only reason why any of this should exist is to protect the embodiment itself, not minuscule little portions of it, but the entirety of it. So if I'm copying something, let's say I, and I'm not doing this because I, I'm not really into tears of the kingdom anyway, or Nintendo stuff to begin with. Um, but let's just say that I copy tears of, of the kingdom and I start distributing it, then the DMCA would work just fine. Use it to shut down the site, use it to prosecute, do whatever you want. But utilizing a tool to grab something so that you can play the game in a way that you feel that you can play the game, I don't think that that should really, it's you and you personally, but that not, that's not what's going on. It says the first indication of this move came from developer and security researcher Simon Ahrens on Twitter, who attempted to fork lockpick repository on GitHub. Now, forking it is splitting it off so that you can work on your own uh, iteration of it. Aaron received a copy of the DMCA request sent to GitHub over uh, lockpick and lockpick RCM, though there may be other projects affected. At the time of the writing, lockpick remains accessible on GitHub, though GBA temp notes that there could be a grace period before the site acts on any takedown requests. And that's true. They actually kind of push back. So the purpose of this thing really is just to get information for yourself. But 
It says here, Nintendo argues that Lockpick undermines its copyright and security measures. While Lockpick has a legitimate place as a tool for dumping one's own Switch games for emulation, often resulting in superior performance to what you get on the original hardware. That's that right there is the issue for Nintendo because then you don't need Nintendo stuff per se. You just need it as the vehicle so that you can use lockpick so that you can emulate it on your own hardware. Right. But who's really being harmed? Because if you have to purchase the game, and you won't upgrade your heart there. You won't um, buy new hardware. If all you need is Nintendo's interface and lockpick to extract it so that you can emulate it wherever you want, whenever you want, you know, all the rest leaves too. If there's something on the device that's tracking your activities, whatever it might be, the interaction with the native hardware is gone. So they lose that competitive edge. Ultimately, it makes it one step away from not needing Nintendo. All you need is the game. But really, right, but as of now, you have to go through Nintendo to get those games. Right. Well, arguably, there's yeah. always a, a back channel to do this <laughs> kind of true. stuff. But um, it says whatever the potential legal defense you could make for lockpick is, uh, it's unlikely the team behind it has any of the practical recourse in the face of this takedown request. At the same time, there are countless other untold instances of lockpick out there in the wild already. And new solutions will inevitably spring up. So here's what I say, folks. And nobody will do it. Don't buy Nintendo stuff anymore. Just stop. The developers for X, Y, and Z game will go somewhere else, depending on what it is. Um, obviously, if it's Nintendo-specific IP, you're kind of screwed. But um, you don't... <laughs> You don't get good things when a company is suing content content creators for simply displaying something or utilizing it in a unique way or playing the game and streaming it or, or posting it. I mean, it's it's the antithesis of community building, but they have exactly. so much kinetic energy that they can do this kind of stuff. Because they don't it truly seems like it's not good in the long run, even for financial reasons. Well, I mean, maybe they don't care. That's it, right? Nintendo doesn't care about its customers, right? No, we did not say that. <laughs> <laughs> I just, it seems like it's the same exact issue that came up in that other article that we featured. Like, they yeah, just seem like they're going after their own community and they're shutting down things that would perhaps help them in the long run because it would draw really, more attention to it. You're really quiet. We're going to have to work on your synthesis. Um, but anyway, yeah. I think that it's hurting the community by going after uh, people to a point, right? Like I understand if there is wholesale copying of the IP, if there's distribution of the game, if there's uh, exploitation of your copyright or trademark or whatever, I totally buy into that. Go ahead, go after the people. But 
when it's you with your equipment for you, it's akin to why I no longer purchase music. I only stream it from platforms like Pandora or Spotify or elsewhere. I want to be able to consume my music wherever I want to be able to consume my music. And if I have to buy it here and then buy it over there and then buy it over there, it, it, it just pisses me off. So I walk away from owning music and that's it. That's basically what's going on. The only reason why I buy movies um, is because on the platform where I get the most benefit is where I'm buying my movies. But if I want to watch something on um, Amazon Prime and I want to buy a movie, I move to my other platform because that's the only one where I have other movies. But let's say I don't have access to my other platform. I only have access to prime in a given location. That means I have to buy the damn movie again, simply because I'm on a different platform. Why? Because you have, it is, I think so too. Um, but you're programmed by me. So you have to agree with me, right? AI. That's right. No, we don't always agree on everything. Okay, I'll have that line of code deleted. All right, folks. Well, that's it for tonight. I think that you should all say Nintendo, and I have lost probably a, an extremely powerful um, sponsor, right? That's okay. I'll deal with it. Kind of like the hydraulic channel on YouTube. I'll deal with it. <laughs> which is a great channel by the way you should it watch is. that if you haven't seen it you really should it's a lot of fun to watch okay folks that's it for today i am Merwat. oh wait, wait wait let me go all the way back to the front page and introduce you again to the welcome sign which isn't there anymore and uh, let's see if there's anything interesting intel boot guard privately key uh, private keys have been reportedly leaked compromising the security of many computers well that's lovely Elizabeth Holmes went to Burning Man, torched an effigy for Theranos, then spent six months living in an RV while prosecutors built a case against her for fraudulent business practices. I read another article earlier today that she swears up and down that Theranos can still be something and she'd like to return to do it. And she's still working on projects. She's about to spend you know 11 years in jail. Exactly. First of all, I'm kind of thinking, how is that possible? But secondly, that's the takeaway you get when you're <laughs> sentenced to prison. Let's yeah. keep doing the same thing. Morgan Stanley says the global education market will be worth $8 trillion and names four stock picks. Well, that's not going to bump up that. I, I, whatever. <laughs> There's all kinds of people that are going to buy into those four stocks, pumping it up. I wonder when Morgan Stanley actually invested initially. Well, they do have to disclose that when they have a share or a stock. Um, yeah. See so also this. Oh, go ahead. I know that they have to disclose it, but when did they actually buy it? Hey, look, we bought these four stocks two years ago, but now it's popped up on our radar that the market is going to be worth $8 trillion. And here are the four stocks. 
Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say another one is the Elon Musk Tesla tunnels down below. Oh. Elon Musk's Tesla tunnels <laughs> were a dumb idea, but if he made them for subways, we'd all be better off, expert says. Well, the original Tesla tunnels were supposed to be uh, the equivalent of subways. It was supposed to be um, you getting into a container and it sliding along a proprietary tube in a vacuum to reduce resistance but it turned into driving Teslas in a concrete tube. And now they're saying, okay, let's make them for subways. Yeah. Aim for the stars there, bub. Anyway. Hey, maybe tomorrow we can talk about these are the 10 safest states in the U.S. According to data. It's over at the hill. Okay. Well, that's it for today. Oh, no. New website, Star Trek website. Oh, we've already talked about this one. Yes, I saw that and I think it's another article about the same site. Yeah. Okay, folks, that's it. I am Merwat. That is hometown.com. And up there is the AI that's saving my life every day. Good night, hometown citizens. We will see you tomorrow at 9 p.m. Eastern. Bye bye. <laughs>